Before his death on the cross, Jesus was put on trial, and most notably, he stood before Pontius Pilate. And to Pilate, he testified that he came speaking the truth. He said, for this I have come into the world to testify of the truth. And in response, Pilate famously said, John 18, 38, what is truth? What is truth? And Pilate's response and question have served as a fitting representation of mankind throughout time. Now, it's been the question of the ages. What is truth? Is there such a thing? Is truth out there? Man's quest for truth has always been attached to the physical world, but has also been inexorably drawn to understanding spiritual truth. Is there a God? What is he like? What's the purpose of life? What happens after death? Jesus came to testify of these things. He came into the world to testify of the truth. But why should you believe him? Why should you believe the Bible? Many other books and people out there making claims on spiritual truth. Why not believe them? What makes the Bible worth believing? These are not merely the questions of the unbelieving. Many Christians wonder the the same things. How do we know the Bible is true? Some are just curious. Others might be struggling, even doubting. And then there are some who they believe the Bible is the word of God, but they face challenges. Their unbelieving friends or family members challenge them on the Bible, and they don't really know how to respond, how to, how to display that the, the, the Bible is true. You know, we recently did some Q&A messages at the church, and I received a couple of messages or questions, rather, along these lines. Some people wanted to know how to explain and demonstrate the authority and the authenticity of the Bible to their unbelieving friends or family members. How do you show others that the Bible is true? How do you know that the Bible is true? So I decide, as I often do, to answer these questions with a full-length sermon, because I know how common these questions are and because Christians need to be equipped. I think we've all had that friend or family member that has challenged the very foundation of our faith by challenging the scriptures themselves. And it's true, that that's, that's the bottom line. If you cannot trust the Bible as true, everything we say and do is for nothing. So is there anything more foundational than the truthfulness of scripture? And shouldn't you be able to give a response? So I want to try and help you with that this morning. And to boil it down in a still kind of simple fashion to present to you why you should believe the Bible. I want to begin with a quick qualifier, though. You need to know that everyone chooses to believe in something. The alternative to faith is not lack of faith. Everyone lives by faith. Everyone chooses to believe in realities and events that they have not seen and which cannot be verified by science. You know, when talking about the truth claims of the Bible, there are always some who are puffed up in intellectual pride and, and they say, I, I only believe science. I will only believe that which can be proven by science. But they're just betraying their ignorance. Science can't answer the questions we're asking. Because these, these questions of the soul, they, they have nothing to do with physics, but metaphysics. Let me take the simple question. What happens to you after you die? Some might say, nothing You're just a bunch of molecules after you die. There's no afterlife. You just fade to nothingness. How do you know that? Can you prove that? Can you show me an instrument that can test that? Can you verify that? The scientific method doesn't apply to that. These questions of the soul are beyond physics. Everyone chooses to believe something of the unseen by faith. 
And there are many truth claims out there about the past, about the future, about the soul. How do we evaluate them? You realize the scientific method only pertains to experiments that are measurable, repeatable, observable. Obviously, that doesn't apply to evaluating past historical events or future truth claims. Instead, we're just left to evaluate the evidence of such claims. For example, how do you know that George Washington was the first president of the United States? You know that. How do you know that? You didn't see it. You weren't there. You have no camera video, no firsthand knowledge. You believe this 100%. How do you know? It's not by science. That's not a question of science. You believe by evidence. You have multiple reliable eyewitness testimonies who were there with him, recorded, faithfully preserved and passed down, all which testify Washington was the first president. That's more than sufficient reason for you to believe that. And likewise, we're left to evaluate the truth claims of the past by evidence. It's like a courtroom case. Someone's on trial for murder, and the court is trying to figure out, are they innocent or guilty? How? You're dealing with a past historical event. It is not observable. It's not measurable. It's not repeatable. So the scientific method doesn't apply. But you're, you're left with evidence. And the case can be sufficiently made with evidence. And so the prosecution will present all the evidence for the case and call many witnesses to the stand. And together they will testify of what really happened. And so it goes for all past truth claims from history. Again, everyone chooses to believe something about God, about the soul, the purpose of life. Even the person who says they believe in nothing, they're still choosing that belief by faith. But I would rather believe with all the evidence than against it, wouldn't you? I mean, you're going to have to believe in something, but would you rather believe for no good reason? And so along these lines, I want to now present to you why you should believe the Bible. To be honest, this will be more like a, a seminar or seminar lecture than a sermon per se, but sometimes it can be helpful to do this in the church setting. So that's what we're going to do. I'll give you seven reasons. Hopefully we'll get through them all. Seven reasons why you should believe the Bible. Number one, the Bible claims to be God's word. The Bible claims to be God's word. It's a simple, straightforward point. It doesn't say much by itself, but it, it needs to be said nonetheless. The Bible claims to be God's word all over. It presents itself as the very words of God and therefore the complete authority to all that which it uh, speaks. About 3,800 times you're going to find the phrase in the Bible, God said, or thus said the Lord. The prophets claim to speak from God as do Christ and the apostles. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is, is inspired, literally God breathed. Then 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Anyone who discounts the Bible because it was written by men is at the very least showing they're ignorant of the claims of the Bible. Of course, it was penned by humans, but the claim is that God himself ensured they wrote his words. And then there's Christ himself who's presented as God's word incarnate. He's the living revelation of God's word. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says that after God spoke to us through the prophets long ago, 
And these last days is spoken to us in his son. And Jesus came to reveal the truth of God to the fullest. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so altogether, the Bible, being the very word of God, it will be inerrant, infallible, authoritative. It's the complete authority on all matters it addresses, such that to disobey or disbelieve the Bible is to disobey or disbelieve God himself. Now, of course, it's obviously not enough to merely cite the Bible's claim to divine authorship. That's obvious. It's necessary, but not sufficient. If that claim is true, though, we should see other corroborating evidence that the Bible really comes from God. So let's keep going. Number two, it's kind of wordy, but the Bible was written by eyewitnesses of supernatural events, chiefly the resurrection of Jesus. Say it a couple times for you note takers. The Bible was written by eyewitnesses of supernatural events, chiefly the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible makes many truth claims about God, man, sin, salvation. Many of these are wild claims that God made everything in the universe, that there's a judgment for sin coming, that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and then rise from the dead and Only those who believe in him will be saved? These are extreme claims. Why should you believe any of this? Part of the answer is signs. Part of the answer is signs. When God revealed his word and will to man, he often gave authenticating signs. These signs were supernatural events that violated the laws of physics. The Bible is filled with these signs, and they were given to authenticate God's messengers and therefore their message, a.k.a. the Bible. So the Bible is not just a record of teaching and truth claims. It's also this profound record of tons of signs, supernatural signs, given to attest to the veracity of the truth claims. Just simplify the discussion. You can always do this. And just keep it with Jesus. Let's just talk about Jesus. Because I think all would agree that the truthfulness of Scripture rises or falls with the truthfulness of Jesus. Right? It's fair to say. Jesus made many truth claims. He's Lord and Savior. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so on. But Jesus did not merely teach and make truth claims. He also performed many miraculous signs. And these works were designed to testify to his truthfulness. His signs proved that he came from God and spoke for God. Listen to John 10, 37 and 38. Where Christ said, if I do the works, or if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Jesus himself came performing many signs and wonders to authenticate his identity and his message as true. And in turn, the New Testament, it's the eyewitness record, not just of the teaching of Jesus, the claims, but also of the supernatural signs of Jesus. And so it's recorded. Jesus walked on water. He turned water into wine, multiplied the bread and the fish, healed the sick, cured the blind, even raised the dead. And these signs were recorded by eyewitnesses 
that you might believe. You know, John 20, 30, and 31. Where John says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So just as a starting point, do you see what the four Gospels are? They're the multiple eyewitness testimonies of the supernatural life of Christ, which in turn attests to all the truth claims Jesus made. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four witnesses taking the stand, these corroborating witnesses, and and they all testify of the same thing. Jesus came working the works of God. And because of that, that, that affirms everything he said. That authenticates the words of God that he spoke. And by the way, that in turn authenticates the whole Bible because Jesus believed the, the whole Bible was actually true, all of it. We can get even more specific and talk about the eyewitness testimony of the greatest sign in the Bible. And what is the greatest sign in the Bible? Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. That the whole Bible stands or falls on this one claim that Jesus rose from the dead. It's like a whole house being built on a single domino. And if that domino falls, the whole house falls. This is a very strong domino though. And the Bible presents multiple eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John add very detailed corroborating eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. We can add 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, where Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You realize how huge of a claim that is to say that the risen Jesus appeared to all these people and then more than 500 people at one time. And they're still alive. Most of them are still alive. You don't make that claim up. It's so easily disproven. All someone had to do is fact check Paul and go talk to just any one of those 500 people and you could disprove it. All someone had to do was, was interview, find those people. But Paul wasn't holding anything back because he and, and the 500 and all those people really believed they witnessed the risen Christ. Now, as part of the purpose of the sign of the resurrection, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, To these, Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. The resurrection was meant to be the greatest sign of Christ's person and work, verifying all he said, which in turn verifies the whole Bible. And that sign comes to us not out of nowhere. It's, it comes directly from multiple eyewitness accounts. And as you know, there's no greater testimony than eyewitness testimony. Even the most skeptical opponent of the Bible has to admit the facts of history that they accept even, that, look, out of nowhere, 
This thing called the church showed up in the first century in the ancient Near East. And it was based on this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Where'd that come from? It came from somewhere. Out of Judaism comes Christianity. You've got thousands of new converts. And it's all based on this testimony that that this random Jew from Nazareth rose from the dead. Where'd that come from? How do you account for the, the facts of history? Some claim, you know, the disciples just made it all up, right? They conspired together. They stole his body. And they, they made up this tale of the resurrection that they could begin the church and have this new like, power and authority structure. But you realize such a claim is supported by zero evidence in all of history that we know. Every record, there's nothing suggesting that at all. It goes against all the evidence. And really, what did the disciples of Jesus gain by such a masterful ruse? Right? None of them were rich or powerful. They all lived in poverty for the rest of their lives, and they were viciously treated for this testimony of Jesus risen. They were hated, scorned, persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and they all were martyred, except for John, all because they, they maintained Jesus really rose from the dead. We saw him with our eyes. You would think at least one of these witnesses would have cracked under the pressure of death. Like, okay, we just made this up. We, we stole the body. You can find it here. But they all gave their whole lives to the testimony of Christ. And then you have the total curveball of the Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul. And even the, the greatest skeptic admits he was a real historical figure. You have this ultra-Orthodox Jew who hated Jesus and led the Inquisition against Christians. But then he claims to have witnessed the risen Lord. And he goes from being enemy number one of Christ to evangelist number one of Christ. He then gives the rest of his life to telling others about the risen Christ, despite countless beatings and imprisonments and torture, ultimately death. How do you explain that? Again, even the most liberal scholars don't deny that Paul wrote Galatians, where he gives his first-hand account of seeing the risen Christ. And really, the only explanation that fits all the evidence is Jesus rose from the dead. It's all just so much, so consistent. And we're just barely scratching the surface. We can't go on, but you can download the Easter 2012 message here, and you'll get a ton more evidence of the resurrection. What is the Bible? Working from Jesus backwards, it's the eyewitness account of supernatural events chiefly the resurrection of Jesus, which attest to the reality of its truth claims. New skeptics have a mountain of eyewitness testimony they have to account for, but they can't. It's just too much. The testimony of the Bible is too consistent. And so what most will do then is just fall back on the claim that, you know, that doesn't matter, right? That the all the, all the signs of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible really doesn't matter because the Bible is not a reliable historical document, right? You know, this is what they fall back on. It's been changed and copied and translated so many times that, you know, who really knows what it originally said? You can't trust it. It's not a reliable historical document. Some even go so far as to say, you know, the whole thing was really made up or just greatly revised in the fourth century by these church councils anyway. So you can't trust it. Those who make such claims, they're just spitting in the face of historical facts. Number three, the Bible is a reliable historical document. 
We'll talk about this. Number three, the Bible is a reliable historical document. There's always some who scoff and say like, hey, you can't believe the Bible because it was written by men. Uh, you know, if that's the case, you can't believe anything that's ever been written because everything written has been written by men. It also means you can't believe anything you write, I guess, but it's just an irrational argument. The question should be, is the Bible a reliable historical document? The answer to that question is overwhelmingly yes. In fact, it is the most reliable ancient document we have by a crazy margin. How did we get the Bible? This, this copy that we hold in our hands today, how did we get it? Through five steps. One, revelation. God revealed his will to man. Two, inspiration. That men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke and wrote from God. Three, canonization. That the inspired writings of these prophets and apostles were collected together. Four, transmission. That all they wrote was copied and disseminated all throughout the world. And five, translation that these writings were then translated into countless languages. Those five steps explain how the Bible came from God's mind to our paper today. But how reliable was that process? What kind of a record do we have of that process? We have an overwhelmingly sound record of that process. Again, just for simplicity and time, let's, let's just talk New Testament that today there are over 5,300 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, dating as far back as the generation after the apostles. But that's not all. As the, the church grew and expanded beyond the, the Greek-speaking lands, the New Testament was quickly translated into many other languages. Syriac, Latin, Coptic, Armenian, Gothic, to name a few. And so from these translations, we can add 20,000 more manuscripts of the New Testament. And then you have the record of the church fathers. These early Christians, they quoted the New Testament in their writings copiously. And so just from their verse references alone, we can reproduce the text of the New Testament many times over. From them, we can add 36,000 more witnesses to the text of the New Testament. And so altogether, we have tens of thousands of witnesses to the text of the New Testament. These numbers are more impressive when contrasted with manuscripts from other works of antiquity. The next best attested ancient work is Homer's The Iliad, which survives in 643 manuscripts, but they all come over a thousand years after Homer. Plato's works survive in just seven manuscripts, and they all come at least 1,300 years after Plato. Caesar's Gallic Wars, 10 manuscripts coming 900 years after Caesar. So already you can see the New Testament is the best attested ancient writing by a long shot. Nothing even comes close. This makes the argument of conspiracy ludicrous. Some really believe the Bible was made up or just heavily revised in the 4th century, right? Constantine's converted to Christianity, Rome becomes Christianized, and he wants to you know, maintain power over this new Christian Roman Empire, so he's got to you know, change the Bible, revise it, unify it, to make it say what he wants him to say, or what he wants it to say, that he can you know, control the empire. It, no problem. That's easy to do. All you got to do is, you know, track down the thousands of Greek manuscripts all around the ancient world and change them all. Make them say what you want them to say. 
And then you got to track down the tens of thousands of translations in other languages and make sure you change those as well so that they all agree. And then you got to find those, you know, 36,000 early church quotes and change those too to make sure they're all consistent. They all fit your, your new agenda here. You know, people who believe this fantasy, they do so by choice. There's literally zero evidence of any of that and just the opposite. And still, as great as the witness of the Bible is, some are still troubled by the fact that we no longer possess the autographs, meaning the original manuscripts. And that is true. They all perished in history. From fire to Roman persecution to wear and tear, the original parchments are, are not with us. And this leads some to question, you know, if we don't possess the original writings, how can we really know that what we have today is what was really written? And that's a good and fair question. And it's answered through the science of what we call textual criticism. Textual criticism. What is textual criticism? Textual criticism is the study of ancient manuscripts so as to determine their origin and authenticity. And when it comes to the New Testament, as you study these thousands of manuscripts, you take into special consideration the earlier ones, there's just so many and they're all essentially saying the same thing. That's just obvious that they all were derived from the same source. It's just a matter of tracing the copies back to the source. You know, the record of manuscripts we have, it's so substantial and so consistent, it leaves little doubt as to what the original said. Now, of course, there are some variants in some manuscripts. Those who make these wild claims about these variants, again, just show their ignorance. And it's not like there's three totally different versions of the gospel of Mark floating around the ancient church. And, you know, the, the, the church council decide we're going to pick this one because it suits our agenda. And we're just kind of cover up these other two. That's, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. No, and, and the thousands of copies we have of, of the, the New Testament, they're all largely and essentially saying the same thing, which means they all came from the same source. The variants we do have are basically typos. They didn't have photocopier machines or printers. All this copying was done by hand. And so it's only natural that some scrabble errors or typos made it into later manuscripts. But through textual criticism, it's, it's not hard to identify and, and correct these trivial mistakes. It's like, imagine you're making 5,000 copies of a flyer with a photocopy machine. And after the first 1,000, you've got to change the toner and while you're doing that, a little hair sneaks under the original copy. And so in the remaining 4,000 copies, they have a little hair on them. This does not mean that your flyer has 4,000 errors, like some claim of the Bible. It means in this case, it has one error. And in this case, it was copied 4,000 times. That can be very easily just traced back, identified, and corrected. You know, some people think we got the Bible today through like a 2,000-year game of telephone, right? Like the apostles, they had the original message, but they told a few people, and they told a few people, and they told a few people, and you know, telephone, by the time it gets to the end, it's been drastically changed. How can we ever believe what the apostles really said? But that's not how we got the Bible. Instead, it's more like the original person told 100 people the same message, and they all wrote it down. And then if any one of them got something wrong, the other 99 would say, you know, that's actually not what he said. And here's the proof. We've got 99 saying the same thing. You have it wrong there. That, that's a typo. 
You see, God in his wisdom, he actually ensured the faithful preservation of his word by just the sheer number of consistent witnesses. The point is, if you cannot trust the Bible as a reliable historical document, you can't trust anything as a reliable historical document. Those who, other, those who argue otherwise either betray their ignorance or their prejudice. Again, we, we can't keep going. This is, I'm just summarizing it and dumping on you. But if you want to learn vastly more about the subject, pretty soon on our website, you can download the old series we did called How We Got the Bible and learn a ton more about this. But I had one more point here, though, that not only is the Bible reliable, but it's also historical. That it truly is historical, meaning it, it matches up with history. The Bible presents many claims of history from persons to places to things to events. And if, if the picture of history in the Bible is just vastly different from the picture of history we get from archaeology and, and other sources, that, that would be a problem. That would mean, well, someone's got something pretty wrong here, and, and that might be an evidence against the inspiration of the Bible. But you know, that, that's not the case. That the Bible has known nothing but just continual affirmation by archaeology. And that's it. There are over 20,000 archaeological finds related to the Bible. And none have ever denied the Bible or, or contradicted the Bible's version of events. They, they only confirm it. And to be sure, skeptics for the past you know, 200 years have been continually saying, you know, the Bible's a myth. Right, the Hittites, they're never real people. King David, did he really exist? The, the parting of the Red Sea, just nonstop. Jericho, that's not a real city. There's no other evidence of it. This claim after claim, it's myth, it's legend, never happened. And then year after year, oh, we just found Jericho. Oh, we just found reference to the Hittites. Oh, I guess it's all verified. They just move on to the next thing. They don't stop and believe and consider. They just find the next way to, to poke uh, holes. But the point is, with each passing year and each passing discovery, the Bible's never proven wrong. Its historicity is just constantly and amazingly confirmed over and over and over again. Again, we're summarizing so much here, but you, know, you should be challenging others and yourself to study for themselves. They're going to find the Bible's version of history confirmed as true history. And the documents of Scripture themselves, that they're the most reliable documents from the ancient world that we have. And this doesn't mean you have to accept the Bible as divine, but it does mean that those who reject the historicity and reliability of the Bible do so out of just ignorance, hatred, or prejudice, and not because of evidence. Let's carry on now. We're going to call to the stand some witnesses that, that further testify of the Bible's divine fingerprints. So far, it's clear the Bible is a, an accurate, authentic, ancient, reliable, historical document. How do we know it comes from God, though? Apart from its claims, let's keep going. Number four, the Bible is verified by prophecy. The Bible is verified by prophecy. This could be its own sermon, but the Bible is more than just a reliable historical document. It is the word of God. And one evidence for that is just the, this, this unending fulfillment of prophecy. Not only does the Bible make truth claims about the past, but it makes tons of truth claims about the future 
a.k.a. prophecy. And no other religious text does this. Nowhere near the extent of the Bible. It's dangerous business. Look, it's one thing to make claims about the past. It's another to start making claims about the future. Because it just takes one claim to not come true, and you lose all your credibility. Right? Like the Jehovah's Witnesses claiming Christ would come back several times. It just, once it doesn't happen, why should we believe anything you say? So it's risky to make a lot of claims about the future. But that says something because the Bible is full of predictive prophecy. Some estimate a quarter of the Bible pertains to predictive prophecy. And God says he's known by his knowledge and control of the future. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning. And if the Bible really is his word, well, it should reflect that. And it does. The Bible contains a long list of fulfilled prophecy. Too much. We, we can't even really summarize it here. You can study this on your own. Though some are still future, none have ever proven false. All you get is a stunning list of literal fulfillment. And for the sake of time, we can just briefly talk about maybe the prophecies of Christ's first coming. In the Old Testament, there are some 355 predictions of the Messiah's first coming or the Messiah's arrival, all of which were written without a doubt at least 400 years before Christ came and and at most 1,500 years before Jesus came. But they're all literally fulfilled. You must notably read for yourself Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, And you're going to see the Old Testament prophetic expectation of Christ's atoning death on the cross. We're not talking about vague generalities, too. This is stunning detail. Like, he'll be reviled by onlookers. His hands and feet will be pierced. They will cast lots for his clothes. That's pretty specific. And the list of of the Bible's prophecy is just long. It's formidable. You can learn more yourself, but you got to give an account for that. How do you explain that? That's not natural. Last time I checked, we can't see the future. And most people who predict, well, everyone who predicts is wrong. So give an account. How do you explain that apart from inspiration? Remember, it's not like the Bible was written by one person in one time who could just make stuff up and ensure it was fulfilled because he's writing the, the past and the future. It comes from so many different authors. In fact, that leads to number five, a fifth reason you should believe. The Bible is a unified composition. The Bible is a unified composition. The fingerprints of God's handiwork can also be evidenced by the amazing composition of the Bible. You know, unlike any other work in history, and especially any other religious text, the Bible displays this uh, amazing unity despite its unparalleled diversity. You probably know this, but the Bible comes to us in 66 books or chapters or volumes, whatever you want to call them. 66 books written over a span of 1,500 years from some 40 different authors writing in three different languages on three different continents. The topics are limitless, covering the full gamut of theology Yet in their portrayal of God, man, sin, salvation, everything, it's just, it's a unified picture. They say the same thing. The background of the human authors is equally diverse. 
The human authors of the Bible included a prince, a shepherd, a king, a priest, a prophet, a tax collector, a Pharisee, a doctor, fisherman, and more. These authors are all mostly writing independent of one another, but the result is fully consistent with itself. And as you know, no two cultures around the world think of God in the same way. So to get this Bible with this picture of God being so unified, yet it's coming from so many different peoples and cultures and places and times, 1,500 years, that is profound evidence of a greater author. This is the mind of God. Only the mind of God could, could weave these, this many random threads together over 1,500 years to make a unified whole. This is more compelling when contrasted with the other sacred texts of other religions, most of which come from one person writing in one time from one place. And even at that, they're not unified. The Bible is a unified composition that the more you learn it, look at that, uh, the, the louder it speaks. A few more here. Number six, the Bible presents a unique and superior worldview. I'll explain. The Bible presents a unique and I will say superior worldview. What's a worldview? A worldview describes a set of beliefs that reflects how one understands the world and therefore lives. Every religion, by default, comes with a worldview. Secular philosophies likewise come with a worldview. The Bible's worldview is just so set apart as unique and superior. Think about, let's start with man's condition or problem. Every religion believes man has a problem. In this world, the Bible alone, however, identifies the problem with a sinful heart. Other worldviews limit man's problem just to behavior. You do some bad things, you make some mistakes. But Christ himself traced man's problem to his heart, his very nature, the desires that spring from within. You don't just have a behavior problem, you have a nature problem, a heart problem. And we do the things we do because we want the things we want. And the Bible uniquely shows the corruption of man's heart and mind and nature as the source of his behavior problems and sinful condition. Let's talk solution. What about the solution to man's problem? All religions propose a solution to our condition. And they all basically have the same solution. Works. Good works. Works righteousness. You know, you've done some bad things. You just got to make up for it. Do some good things. Do more good than bad. And you're good to go. You'll ascend to heaven or nirvana or whatever. Just do good works. Give money. Go on a pilgrimage. Pray, fast, meditate, sacrifice. You know, the list goes on. Just do, you know, be a good person and God will accept you. But the Bible alone rejects these as a means of salvation. And the Bible alone teaches That the only solution to our actual condition is grace. God's grace, not man's effort. Right? The reconciliation of the love and justice of God is found only on the cross where the Son of God died in our place to pay our debt of sin, which which we could not come close to paying by our own works and effort. And in Christ, we can be forgiven, made righteous, and saved. This all comes by God's grace, his undeserved favor. We receive that gift by faith in Christ. That is truly a unique worldview. 
set apart from all the inventions of man, which irrationally believe that a perfectly holy God can be appeased by some good works. Now, only the Christian worldview can account for God's perfect love and his perfect justice at the same time. And then think about heaven. Now, the afterlives of other worldviews and religions, they're very carnal, as if they were made up by men desiring wish fulfillment. Right, you know, what makes the afterlife great in other religions? Well, you know, you, you get your every desire. You get stuff. You get your own planet. You get 72 virgins. The things which appeal to the flesh. But the Bible understands the infinite majesty of God, that there's nothing greater than God himself. What other reward are we looking forward to than God and, and reconciliation with the creator? And so what makes heaven great According to the Bible's worldview, it's not stuff or wish fulfillment. It's God himself. And the Bible's picture of the afterlife is one of full restoration with God, dwelling with him and his son forever and finding eternal joy and satisfaction just in his worship. You know, the man-centeredness of all other worldviews speaks of their source, But the radical God-centeredness of the Bible, that says something about its source as well. It's set apart. Lastly here, number seven, the Bible has transformed countless lives and world history. The Bible has transformed countless lives and world history. And the Bible, being the word of God, claims to have the power to change lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, those in Christ become new creatures. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says that salvation has the power to transform the adulterer, the thief, the sexually immoral. And that testimony has been confirmed by millions throughout history. The Bible and its truth truth claims have changed countless lives and radically altered the course of human history. Now, of course, this evidence is not sufficient by itself because this can be said of the other world religions. They have changed lives. They have altered human history. That's fair. But if the Bible is true, well, look, we would expect it to have a major impact on lives. We'd expect it to be able to just transform people the way it claims, and it does. And furthermore, if the Bible were just forgotten by history, who would believe it's true? But to the contrary, nothing has changed and just shaped human history, global history, like the Bible. Drug addicts, alcoholics, even murderers can testify of the power of this book, the Bible, to just supernaturally stop you in your tracks, change you, give you a new life, new desires, a new heart, a new hope overnight. There's power in the word. At the very least, if the Bible really is the word of God, it should be able to change lives as it claims, and it does. And as you talk to others, that's where your own personal testimony can enter. That this book, it changed me. I can be a living testimony to you of, I think it came from God. And we're just scratching the surface. But you put all this together kind of in summary fashion. It informs really the basic case for why you should believe the Bible. Now, ours is not a blind faith. And we do not believe against evidence. And to the contrary, reasons to believe are are unending. 
that our faith is logical, it's reasonable, it's evidential. It's with all the evidence we can think of. This is why you should believe the Bible. I got to make one final point, though, before we finish. This is why you should believe the Bible. This is not why you do believe the Bible. You need to understand this. Why, for those here who do believe, why do you believe the Bible? Not why should you, why do you believe the Bible? And the ultimate answer to that question is not because of fulfilled prophecy. It's not because it's a reliable historical document. No, the the real reason you believe the Bible is true is because the Spirit of God has opened the eyes of your heart and enabled you to see clearly and believe. Right? 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the world, this, this is dumb. It, it makes no sense. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, for they are spiritually appraised. Because of the blindness of the sin condition, man can't understand the things of God. He has no eyes to see. It, it makes no sense. It's foolishness. A veil remains over his eyes, like 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. It says, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And look, no amount of evidence will remove that veil. You can give someone tons of proofs that the Bible can be trusted Hey, here's why you should believe the Bible. But that's not going to make them believe the Bible. It's like Jesus himself said in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If someone does not believe based on Moses and the prophets, meaning God's word, they're not going to believe even if someone rises from the dead. You need to know evidence is not the answer to unbelief. That doesn't mean we we neglect evidence. Yes, testify of the truth and its evidence too. That God can use evidence to remove intellectual roadblocks in the minds of the unbelieving. He can take away, take away excuses uh, for unbelief. But ultimately, you have to realize, why do you believe the Bible? And why will others believe the Bible? The answer is 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness... It's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The only way a person believes is because God says, let there be light in their heart and opens their eyes. He gives them new eyes to see things clearly where where the veil of sin is removed. And then at that point, scripture becomes immediately clear. And self-evident, as true. Everything makes perfect sense, and they believe. Listen, even if someone saw Christ himself today risen from the dead, based on that alone, they wouldn't believe. They, people, are, people are still like Pontius Pilate. They could be standing in front of truth incarnate, and yet still say, what is truth? But what they really need is their own resurrection. They need their own resurrection. They must come to new life, and that is a work of God. And this is an important reminder for us. 
people don't have an evidence problem. They have a sin problem. They have a nature problem. And the only solution to that problem is the gospel and the gospel alone. It's the only means God uses to raise the dead. And so what you really need to do is just preach the gospel to your friends, to your family members, to your neighbors, those who attack the Bible and hate it, maybe like Saul, they persecute the church. But you need to know that the power to change them is not in you. You don't have that power, but it's in Christ and his word. He can humble them and convince them of his word in a second. And he does so through the gospel preached, the message of his life, death, and resurrection. So you be most faithful in that. Look, give your defense of the Bible. Yes. Tell people why they should believe the Bible. Hey, give them these seven reasons. But understand that that's not why you believe the Bible. Ultimately, you believe and others will believe because God still raises the dead and opens blind eyes. So pray accordingly. Share the gospel accordingly. Let your own faith be encouraged, though, this morning to know that you've chosen wisely. You have believed appropriately. You're you're not a fool. Now, of course, that's because God has opened your eyes to the power of his word. But for that, give him thanks and do not take for granted the power of his word. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Our great God, we, we affirm that we once believed, I did, your word was foolishness, made no sense. But as we come to believe in Christ, as our eyes are opened by your work, we know it's the power of God. It's the word of God and the power of God. This is a work you must do, Lord, to raise the dead to new life, to open blind eyes. Sin has held us captive. Satan it was our master. Death reigned over us and apart from the work of Christ and his spirit, That's the way we would remain. We marvel at the mercy of God and the glory of this gospel that that the almighty creator God would care about his creation enough to send his own son to, to die on the cross, to bear their sin and shame, even though they didn't deserve it, and to rise to new life, to truly rise to new life, that we might have that same new life. There is glory here in this gospel. We who believe, praise, and worship you as we remember. Let our faith be built up, encouraged, and strengthened to know it's not by sight, but it's not blind. It's based on what has been written. And we can have full confidence in that. Those who don't believe, Lord, we pray you you use the truth to open their eyes. You, You call them to life through your son that they might believe and be reconciled to you and have the ultimate hope the hope of new and eternal life with the creator forever. That's a blessed hope and we look forward to it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.